<laughs> well, if, if you happen to bring your Bibles, um, I'm going to actually um, leap out of Second Samuel and into a psalm that David wrote, uh, Psalm 8. And the reason I'm doing that this morning is because we are exactly four weeks out from Easter, counting this morning. Um, I can't believe, I'm sure you feel the same way, how fast 2013 has already went. We're already, you know, quarter of the way through it. And um, I really wanted to um, kind, kind of transition us for the next four weeks uh, toward, toward Jesus, the son of David, um, and not so much focused on David. So um, I'm going to return to 2 Samuel after Easter, but um, this is kind of a bridge sermon, and I think you'll see how, how what David wrote here pertains and leads us to Jesus and where I'm going to be going over the next three weeks after this morning. So um, Psalm 8, it's, it's one of those psalms. Wow. Um, it's one of those, <laughs> I just love feedback, don't you? I'll tell you what, however loud it is there, it's really loud up here. Uh, let's see, where was, a uh, Psalm 8. It's, it's one of those psalms, like, a, um, the whole book of Psalms was written to connect with our hearts. Um, that's what it was intended to do in, in uh, the highs and lows and suffering and uh, anxiety and anguish. I mean, they just connect to real human life. And, um, um, I've read Psalm 8 for years, but, but just recently, last, say, year, year and a half, two years, I just really savored the goodness of God in this particular psalm, Psalm 8, um, written by David. Now, to get into Psalm 8, let, let me just start a little bit on the kind of a lighter side, indulge the, my attempts at, at humor. But, you know, over the years, it's, it's, uh, it's struck me how people become like what they idolize, you know, um, we were back in the 80s, uh, all the girls thought Madonna was hot, and so they kind of dressed up like her with the big hair and the pink and the black and the red lipstick, and you could kind of tell they were kind of Madonna-like people. Or I had students in my youth group one year um, who just loved Michael Jordan. That was back when he was big with the Bulls, and, and um, so they, every, they bought everything Jordan, you know, Air Jordan shoes and, and, and shirts, and that's what they did because they wanted to be like, like Mike. And um, even today, you know, there are people who want to be like, like, like popular people. You look around these days, how many kids have Justin Bieber haircuts? There's a lot. Uh, in fact, I've, uh, I was surprised to find out that our own Justin Nunes, you know, our, our, our high school um, director, he actually has kind of a fetish for, for Justin, uh, Justin Bieber, too. Um, I, I, actually, uh, um, I did a little digging you know, what gave it away was the, uh, was the red pants and the green pants. But I uh, did some digging, and I actually found a picture. And I think the dew looks pretty good on, on Justin here. Uh, you know, and I thought, saw this, I thought, this is Donald Trump younger, you know, with a skinnier face or with his mouth open. The simple point, all humor aside. I had to get him back. You know, he introduced me at High Life one time and then had my head connected to this dancing how you say it, gum gum style dude that, and I, was, I had to speak after that, and I've wanted to get him back ever since then. Simple point is that we become like what we truly worship. And when I say truly worship, I mean to underline that word, truly worship. What we really prize with our hearts begins to form us and shape our lives. So what we worship, we become like, or what we gaze at, um, we grow into. And um, the Bible is very clear on this point in both a negative and positive direction. 
in a negative direction, um, the Bible teaches us things, and this is, here's just two examples taken from the Psalms, that those who make them, he's talking about idols, those who make idols, that is false gods, become like them. So do all who trust in them. The simple point being that those who trust in false gods become like those false gods. They become deaf. They become, become dumb. That is, their, their souls shrivel. And they, um, this kind of worship of anything that is not God, whether it's a woman, a car, or a job, it dehumanizes you and shrinks your soul so that we become like what we worship in the negative side. We are shaped by what we prize the most. And the same is true on the positive side. Um, we're told by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, which I, I, in my opinion, is one of the most important verses on how a Christian grows, transforms, or on the doctrine of sanctification that we can find. That is, Paul writes, he says, And we all with unveiled faces, unveiled because the Holy Spirit has, has enabled us to see what we can't see with physical eyes. Beholding, that's a sight word, beholding or gazing the glory of the Lord are being transformed as we gaze and behold into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's the change part of changing from one degree of glory to another. And that's done as we, with our souls, um, gaze upon or behold or meditate, contemplate, ponder the vast majesty and glory of who God is that that actually changes us from the inside out. Our beholding helps us to become. Um, our gaze helps us to grow. What you worship truly with your heart and prize with your heart and savor with your heart forms you into the very nature or image of that thing. And Psalm 8 is, is a psalm, in my opinion, of, of gazing upon the majesty of, of God. And that's really all we're going to do is, is just to gaze upon the majesty of God. This isn't a how-to sermon. Because as Paul points out, we grow and we, we're strengthened as we worship the Lord. Um, it's the most formative thing we can do is just gaze upon the glory of the Lord and allow it to change us from the in, inside out. Well, David's psalm is a psalm of praise for God's majesty. It be, begins and ends with the same exact line. O Lord, our Lord, or O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's how it opens and it closes the same way. And everything in between goes to show us how the Lord, how the name of the Lord is majestic. Now, I, I love that word majestic. I think most of us do. Um, we love it when we um, experience things that just blow our minds, whether it's standing or um, in, the, in St. Paul's Cathedral in London for the first time, just going, oh my goodness. Or standing on the rim of the, the, um, the Grand Canyon and just seeing the immensity of the, the chasm and just kind of a sense of awe at the majesty of, of something so grand and so massive. And that's kind of um, uh, what David has in mind, only God's majesty is, is, is far bigger than anything created. And he goes even further than, than to, to say that not only is his name majestic in the realm of earth, but he goes on to say in the next part of the psalm, he goes on to say that you have set your glory above the heavens. As I meditated on that, I have to use every ounce of imagination to think about what that means. Because um, the biggest thing in, in our experience that we can ever point to 
you know, oceans, mountains, but ultimately the biggest thing that we can point to is this thing we call space or the canopy of space or the stars, the heavens. And, and David's saying, you have set your glory like above the heavens, like beyond the, the gape of scouring human eyes through telescopes. Like his glory far surpasses that. That's how immense and how huge it is. How majestic is your name in all the earth and far above the heavens is what he says. But what he says next should startle, surprise, strike us as odd. Because in verse 2, he goes from the heavens, and if you have your Bible, you want to look at this. In verse 2, he takes a drastic turn and says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. He goes from talking about the glory and majesty of God that fills the earth and is above the heavens, and then immediately takes a real downturn, and he starts talking about um, out of the mouth of babies and infants, the most um, helpless of creatures, you know, a little baby. I was thinking about this just this morning, that um, most mammals learn how to walk within days or weeks of being born, and it takes a human baby over a year or sometimes a little bit earlier, but it takes us forever. We talk about weak and fragile. And yet, the amazing thing is that the God whose glory is on high has established strength in the immaterial, fragile form of what he says, babies and infants. And notice what it says. I mean, this, this should cause all kinds of questions to come to mind. That um, out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established power, strength, might, because of, and the cause is, there are enemies and foes of the Lord. Enemies and foes of the Lord. Now, to me, that raises a lot, the questions spring to mind, like, what in the world, um, who's the enemy of God that is going to be brought down by Fragile infants. Does that strike you at all as, as a, a question? Like, so God has established his power through infants to bring down his enemy? To kind of get at the, uh, the answer to those questions, you have to pause and kind of recognize a couple things in this psalm as a whole. One is, is that um, David is using language from Genesis, the opening chapters of Genesis. Uh, he talks about um, the moon and the stars which the Lord has set in place. I mean, that's a reference to Genesis chapter 1, 19 and following. And then later when he talks about man, um, he says that basically man has been crowned and given dominion over the animals and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. That's a, a direct echo of um, Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and following. In other words, when David is writing this, he is contemplating and thinking about um, God's creation of man at the very beginning. Now, if that's true, and I believe it is true, then it's, um, it's not a long shot um, to believe that he also recognized that there was an enemy of God back in the beginning of Genesis. And at least one of those foes that he's speaking of here in, in Psalm 8 was probably the foe of the snake or the serpent or what we've come to know as the devil, who is not only the archenemy of God's work, but also the archenemy of man. That he is the one who, who seduced, dethroned, and... Um, has, has brought ruin to our, our race. 
So I, I think, at least in part, he recognizes that God, through the weakness of a child or children, is going to bring down powerful enemies. And I don't think it would be a long shot either to think that David recognized that, that in Genesis 3, when God comes to the serpent, he says, you know what, there's going to be an offspring, a baby that's going to come that's going to bring you down. He's going to crush your head. And so meditating on how God created man and recognizing that man, though he is fragile, we are and weak, that, that God is going to bring down his enemies through weakness. And that's, that's part of, of, I think, why God is majestic and why he's, he's glorious. Is that God doesn't have to take down his enemy through raw power. I mean, he could, and at the end of the age, we, Jesus will when he comes back again. But the way in which God subdues his enemies is actually through weakness. Through the weakness of human flesh. And only God can do that. To bring down the powers that be through weakness. That's how God subdues his enemy. Through the weak. I also believe that, uh, that David probably, when he was meditating on Genesis, connected it to his own life. I mean, David, of all people, he's the youngest of, of what, eight siblings. And he was probably thinking, okay, God, you, you made Adam to, to, to be a king, to exercise dominion, and, and you, you chose me. Like of all the people you could have chosen, the, the, the youngest, the runt of the litter, you chose me. Like I'm just a shepherd and I play the harp. That's what I do. But you, you, you chose me to exercise dominion and you chose me to bring down Goliath on the battlefield and bring down the Philistines and bring down the Amalekites and to exercise dominion over your people Israel, your kingdom. He probably was thinking to himself, like, why would you ever do this? Why would you choose me? And that's actually precisely where he goes in the psalm of asking the question, what, what, in light of everything that I see, why, why would you show any concern or regard for who I am? And by the way, um, this psalm, if I were to do a physical demonstration of how it works, it's like David looks up, then he looks down, up, then down. He's looking at the glory of the Lord that set above the heavens. Then he's looking at, at infants and babies. And then he comes back again. He says, um, when I look at your heavens, he looks back up again as if he goes, looks up and goes, wow. And then he looks down and goes, really? Looks up and says, wow. And looks down and says, really? Like you would do that so high and yet bending so low? Because he says, when I look at your heavens, he's now looking back up and saying, wow. Uh, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, doesn't even take a hand, just fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, Here's the question. Now he looks back down and says, really? He says, what is man that, that you are mindful of him? That you would even notice. And the son of man that you care for him. And as compared to the stars and the moon and the galaxies that God has created, he looks back at himself and looks at, 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 at humanity. He's like, why, why, why would you even take notice of us? We're so puny, so insignificant. I don't get to mountain climb much anymore, um, hopefully someday, but I'll tell you, one image, multiple images actually I carry in my mind that I'll never forget is, is seeing climbers against a glacier. 
whether it's on Mount Shasta or Mount Rainier. I remember standing on top of what's called Disappointment Cleaver, and it lives way up to its name. <laughs> and I'm um, looking down with Pete Gaudet and seeing these uh, string of climbers all roped together going across the Ingram Glacier. And they looked like they were smaller than ants, just little tiny black dots all in a row, like a, like a really, really skin, skinny caterpillar just making its way along the glacier. And I, I find myself and found myself thinking probably what you'd think um, or when you stand by the Grand Canyon or something massive, it's like, really? Like, why would you even care? Little spots, little dots, that's, that's all we are on the side of a mountain. And yet God cares and is mindful of those dots. Um, you know, pan back to the earth and we don't even register as, as dust. Um, in the scope of the cosmos, we're less than subatomic particles. And yet, what, is, what does David say? It's like, in a kind of a, an astonishing, disbelieving faith, he says, what is man? What are these dots that you would actually care for us? And yet, the miraculous thing is that you do. You do care. And what I want to say to everyone here, and this is what I preach to myself, is that a the glory of who the Lord is that's revealed in the Bible is most of the time connected with, with the immeasurable height of who God is in, in all of his vastness and the fact that he travels so low that he regards individual lowly puny people. That's the glory of the extent and the massiveness of his care, of his love, of his compassion. And that's what shows off just how, how amazing he is and makes him majestic. You lose the top that his glory is above the heavens, you, you, you miss the glory. But if you don't take into consideration in your gaze that God comes all the way down into the dust of sinful humanity to care for individual people by name, you miss the glory. Again, this isn't just this psalm. This is um, other psalms too, where God's greatness is, is measured by or revealed in the distance traveled from high to low. By the way, that's point two that I just kind of covered. His incomprehensible care for puny man. That's part of his glory. Psalm 13, 113. Um, who is like Yahweh, our God, who is seated on high? There he is. No one is like him is the point of that question who looks far down on the heavens and earth. He's got to stoop really low just to look at the heavens. That gives you a sense of just how transcendent or high or majestic he is. Looks far down on the heavens and the earth. For what purpose? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He cares about the individual little tiny dots on planet earth. He doesn't just care about them, but he says here, he makes them to sit with nobility high, looking far down to care for the poor and the weary and weak. Psalm 138 is a psalm of David's where he connects it to the same thing. Where he, he writes, and they, the they in the passages or in the psalm is the kings of the earth shall sing, they're going to worship um, of the ways of Yahweh for great is the glory of the Lord. And the next word for tells you that now he's going to show you what God's glory consists of. For great is the glory of the Lord, for though the Lord is 
high. He regards the, the dots, the puny and the insignificant. You see, David looks as we should look. Part of gazing at the glory of the Lord by which we are transformed from one degree of glory to another is just to see how immeasurable the expanse from height to depth is that God traveled. And not only does he care about the little tiny fallen, broken, fragile dots like you and me, but he became one of those fragile dots to reclaim us. That should expand your soul. Rather than shrivel it like a false god does, it expands. It fills you with a sense of praise and gratitude and strength because you've beheld just how awesome God is in his grace and love. Ephesians connects it the same way. Talking about the God who is on high, who who first loved people dead in their trespasses and sins and reaches down to those who were dead and makes us alive with Christ and raises us up with Christ and seats us with Christ in the right hand. Glory coming down and lifting up. That's part of what God's glory is and why David says, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, all the earth. You bring down formidable powers through the weakness of human flesh. And like babies, the cries of babies. And you also are one who cares about insignificant, puny people like me and like you. And then... The last part is, is in this psalm is, is where he takes humanity, what he's designed it to be. Though, the, though puny and subatomic particle-like in terms of how big or significant we are, he again consider, looks back up to where God has placed us by his own grace and by his wisdom. And verse 5, you read, yet. There's a, another major right turn after saying, What is man that you're mindful of him? That's the really? Yet, verse 5, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Those are words that are picked up in Revelation 5 about the Lamb, the Son of God. Um, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet is a way of talking about his rule and reign. Everything has been placed under the, the feet of man. All sheep and oxen and also beasts of the field, birds of the heavens and fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. You know, when he writes in verse 5 here where it says, and I don't know what your translation says, whether you have NIV, NAS, or ASV, or King James, but translators have a really difficult time translating verse 5. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Some of yours probably say a little lower than angels. The ASV actually says a little lower than God. And the reason they have a difficult time translating the word here, heavenly beings, is because it's the same name as the generic name for for God, Elohim. Uh, You have made man a little bit lower than Elohim. That's the same word used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. That's why they have a difficult time translating it. Some translated angels because they want to create distance between man and God which I fully understand will never be even remotely grand like God. And yet at the same time, he's getting across the point. God made this designed man to occupy a place of, of immense glory. He has crowned man with this kingly sovereignty over his creation. 
That's how noble man was created to be. How regal and, and uh, astounding in his capacity to rule in God's place and take care of planet Earth and the animals and so forth. Yet he made him a little lower than God is how the ASV translates it. See, God, pretty amazing actually when you think about it. This psalm which talks about um, what makes God majestic is that he is, um, his glory is above the heavens and yet he's, he's going to bring down his enemies through human weakness. That God cares about the little space that our bodies take up and the souls inside and that he has given man a place, an exalted place that we don't deserve to be. And mind you, this is a bit of an aside, and this is a bit speculative on my part, but um, it kind of serves the point. Reading between the lines, I would estimate that one of the reasons why Lucifer, also known as the devil, who was once created the greatest and grandest of God's good angels, I think one of the reasons, possibly, that he fell was the creation of man. What I mean by that is, I think he was the big man on campus. In God's heavenly realm, he held the right-hand position. And when God created man and said, I am going to give you sovereign dominion over my creation, um, it's not unlike pride to say, are you kidding me? You're going to hand over the reins of everything to that little tiny dot you created out of dust and clay? Which explains why the devil aimed everything he had at the first man and dethroned him. Pride doesn't want to be second man. It wants to be first man. That's the exalted place that I think God has, has set for man. And you just realize... God's majesty and glory is seen in that fact, bringing down enemies through weakness and caring for the puny, but then exalting the puny to, the, to really one of the highest places. That's how God designed us to be. That's how he designed Adam to be and what he designed David to be. And, and yet you and I both know that those, their reigns were very short, both in Eden and also in Israel, which tells us that... Um, this psalm ultimately has someone else in mind. That the one who fully realized this psalm and the purpose for man was none other than Jesus, who, oddly enough, was born a baby, an infant, um, in Bethlehem, who lived a perfect life, um, suffered, and not through raw power, but rather through the weakness of the cross and death brings down and crushes the head of the devil and takes away his dominion, takes away his power over our souls because he won through the weakness of a cross by substituting himself in our place to take our curse, which we deserved and he didn't, so that he could win the day and rise again and then, and then promise to raise us also from death to life, not only now in this age, but also in the age to come. And bring the conquering blow when he returns. Through the weakness of human flesh, 
God cares. And God exalts. And the one who, who ultimately, as I mentioned, fulfills this is the one who stands on a mountain in Matthew chapter 28 saying, all authority has been granted to me in heaven and on earth. The same one who stands at the right hand of God in Revelation chapter 5, to whom all of heaven bows down in worship because he is the one who rules. And in him, here's the cool thing, in him, that is, for those of us who have come to, to surrender our lives in faith to our Savior King, who is Jesus, who fulfills this psalm, this psalm becomes our psalm too. God continues through the frailty and the immaterial words of his followers as we speak forth the name of Jesus, however imperfectly we do it, he brings down the enemy. That's, that's one of the songs we sing, uh, Revelation 12, you know, through the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Weak individuals, God accomplishes great things. Um, it just goes to show the truth of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, where, where Paul speaks of the way God works, and he says that God uses the foolish things to confound the wise and the weak things to shame the strong. You don't have to be strong to be used by God. You just have, simply have to trust in him and allow him to use the infant cries of your voice and your life to bring down the enemy by the power of Christ and the power of the gospel. And to know that in Christ, we have been, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, we have been raised up with him and seated with him, and we look even now to the day in which that becomes a visible, physical reality, and when we experience the glory of Christ forever and ever, and amazingly enough, he shares his reign with us. That's the glory, my friends. Bridged both sides. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And, and that majesty and glory is comprised of the simple truth that God in his magnificence uses weak to bring down his enemies. That he cares for the puny and insignificant. And that he raises or exalts um, us in Christ to a place that we were originally designed to be back in Genesis chapter 1. And so he's able to explode in praise. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's, that stirs my affections. I hope it does yours. That's what we're supposed to be doing most of the time in life, and it's the most formative, transforming thing that you can possibly do in your life is instead of keeping your eyes down all the time and trying to figure out what your next step is, to stop and to look up and behold the glory of the Lord in all of its vast array and how high he is, but how low he came, how much he loves, how much he took on for us to allow your soul to be filled with the glory of God and then be changed. There's, I get the most strength when I'm here. I have the most hope when I'm here and I'm, I'm beholding. I feel the most joy when I'm here beholding because this is where transformation takes place. So I hope not only that you will be encouraged by what we've seen between those two, how Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, but you'll see that this is where you need to be constantly because it's what God uses to change you from one degree of glory to another. Lord, make that a reality in our lives. We just thank you for the revelation of who you are, so vast, so grand, so 
amazing, so astounding, so indescribable, so incomprehensible, and yet you have um, opened the veil of our eyes and you have allowed us to see even just some, some of the vast expanse which is called your glory. And for those who don't know you here this morning, who don't have eyes to see, I just pray you'd open them to see that the greatest thought, the greatest idea, the greatest concept um, is summed up in who you are. And you are not a concept. You are a being, a person, real, profoundly awesome and wonderful. So we just cry out, Lord, just fill our hungry souls with you and your greatness, your grace, your love, your truth. In Christ's name, amen.